You are listening to SelfDiscoveryRadio.com with an orchard of wisdom just ready for your picking, filled with illuminating, inspiring stories. Do check out the community and the discovery stores. We are here for you. Our next show is... Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Choose Positive Living. I am your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today is Dan Perkins. He is an author, and the book we're going to be talking about today is Why Can't Grammy Remember Me? It's around dementia, losing our memories. And we're seeing dementia being so much more prevalent today and wondering why. Is it uh, what we're intaking? Um, How do we kind of keep our mind sharp that we do not lose our memory Uh, we are going to have some background sound um, because he's had to move into his car to do this show and hopefully we will not have any hurricanes there in in Florida (laughs) and we will manage to bring you all this wonderful expertise from Dan he actually is an author of a few other books that we're going to hit on later but first we're going to start on this one first and uh, a very hot topic isn't it Dan dementia and uh, something that, yep. you know, Alzheimer's and dementia, I've done many shows on it. And it's something that um, I think actually is probably really, really more scary than many, many things because nobody wants to think that you get to the end of your life and you can't remember anything. Uh, that's very true. You know, it, it's um, the more I got involved in talking to researchers and clinicians about the subject matter, uh, the the scarier it got. Um, I, I I wrote this book for several reasons. One of them is because a very good friend of mine um, and a client um, was diagnosed with early onset at, at age 52 and passed away at age 62. This man had almost a photographic memory, and as, as you point out, at the end of his life, he he knew nobody. Mm-hmm. He knew n- none of his wife, his wife, his children me anybody um and so it's it's really uh a difficult time for the survivors the person who has the dementia and slowly forgets everybody and everything it's it's a it's a a simple time it's almost like a a baby being born that can't speak doesn't know anything but we the survivors the ones left behind are the ones who who suffer and in, in talking to researchers and, and, and doctors and nurses, what I found was that children, grandchildren, are the most affected by this terrible disease. And what I mean most affected is that um, when mom and dad get sick and, and develop dementia, uh, the children, their children, uh, in many cases, take on the responsibility to try and provide for their care. And that could be bringing them into their house for some period of time or finding an assisted living facility or institutional care if necessary. What I found time and time again is that parents are still are struggling with the problems of their parents. They don't take the time to try and explain to their children, mm-hmm. the grandchildren, what's happening to grandma and grandpa. And as a result, when Susie goes to visit grandma in the assisted living place and grandma can't remember her name or grandma can't answer a question that Susie might ask, they believe it's their fault. Yeah. Yeah. They've done something wrong that's made grandma angry with them and that's why she won't speak to her. And I believe that, but I came a stronger believer of it when I did a book tour, and one of my stops on the tour was a fourth-grade class in Cincinnati, Ohio, nine- and ten-year-old kids. And I asked them how many had heard about the dementia, and it was 140 kids. A lot of hands went up. I asked, do any of you have grandparents or aunts or uncles that have dementia? Some hands went up. And I said, of those of you that have parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles that have dementia, and when you went to visit them wherever they were and they didn't answer your questions or call you by name, how many of you thought it was your fault? And I was shocked at the number of hands that went up in the air. Yeah. And, and I showed them the two illustrations in the book of between 
Hudson, one of our little detectives, her brain and Grammy's brain. And I said to this class, it's not your fault. It's nothing that you've done wrong. It's what's going on in grandma's brain. And see, the problem is that we have is that parents are seem to be ill-equipped mm-hmm. to communicate to their children what's going on with grandma. So this book fills that void. Also, in the back of the book, there are 12 activities that families can do together, children and parents and grandparents, if possible, to begin to preserve the memory of grandma and grandpa and what they did in their lifetime. So it's a positive book. It's a fun book. It's a, it's written as a mystery because my background is writing mysteries and thrillers. And it's about two little girls and, um, and their dads. And uh, so it's very entertaining, very educated, or help educates both families and children what's going on. And... Um, the book has been out about five weeks, and sometime, if we're probably while we're talking on the air today, we will cross 100,000 wow. page views looking at this book. I mean, that just shows why it's so needed. You know, having done a lot of shows on Alzheimer's on dementia, um, there is so little information out there about it, and the, there is so little preparation. And, uh, you know, one of the people I interviewed, Ann Bird, who was a nurse, um, she actually kind of left the nursing, nursing practice to start her own practice of helping people prepare for it. And that means the person that has the beginnings of dementia or Alzheimer's, while they're still cognitive, to choose where they want to go or to put their affairs in order, um, to be able right. to speak to the to the grandchildren. You know, like Nana or, or Grandpa is going to start losing their memory. You haven't done anything. You know, you remember me because I'm not going to be re- remembering me. There has to be more interaction and more education and more participation because it's almost like, oh, it's a disease. We don't want to talk about it, but it's not one of these ones that right. you can run from right i i think things that surprised us we we're in our second marketing campaign and i said to my media people i said i i want to reach out outside the united states mm-hmm. and and we went we added a week and a half ago we added canada and the uk as as test cells to see what happens and the reaction from canada uh, has been phenomenal. Actually, as a percentage of the respondents, Canada ranks first, and uh, UK is second, United States is third. But um, I get a lot of demographic information mm-hmm. uh, on anybody who responds. And what we're finding, uh, between the first campaign and the second campaign, I moved the uh, upward range from 54 and less to 64 and less. And the huge jump in the response rates, about a third of the people who are responding to this book are uh, over 65 years of age, and uh, females dominate over males in all age categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but, but I, I think what's happening, and, and you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, I think what's happening is that grandma is actually buying the books for her children and grandchildren. Preparing them. To help them get... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we have the old thing as, you know, because I'm 63. So, you know, you get to that age where, yeah, you become forgetful. But, you know, you see so many greats and what a life they have. You know, um, at the end of your life, you want to be able to sit back and look at your memories. Look at the things you've achieved. Feel proud about them. And to have that robbed from you, I think, is, you know, catastrophic. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. to have it robbed from family that you are no longer there, but you're there. I know um, I had an uncle whose um, wife had dementia. He could not leave her side. She would go completely bananas if she was left alone. And for 10 years, he Mm -hmm. took care of her. And his life was just completely about her. And he had no life, no respite. And there was no support. We are getting more to um, an area now where people are understanding that there needs to be support, not just the support of putting a person in a home, but the education of what it is, how long it's going to take, how to support everybody, the person going through it, the whole family. Um, We need to speak about it. So having a book that speaks to the grandchildren, um, I think is wonderful because 
parents who are trying to ignore it while reading this book, or it's the kids that turn around and start educating the parent, which is very, very often the best way to do it. It's an engaging the conversation, isn't it? And a conversation that so many people don't want to have. I, I say to people that this book, this book was written for children ages 9 to 12 and their family. Yeah. This book needs to be read by the entire family. Let me give you two statistics that I got from the executive director of the Greater Cincinnati, Ohio Alzheimer's Foundation. First, there are, in the United States, I I haven't got numbers worldwide, but in the United States, there are over 5 million people that are currently diagnosed with dementia. They project, based on the baby boomer retirement, mm-hmm. that by the year by the year 2050, that's a while away, 32 years from now, that the dementia population in the United States will be 50 million people, wow. 10 times what it is today. The other thing that she gave me, which is, comes from, from ALS research, is that right now, because we are increasing in longevity, if you make it to 85, you have a one in two chance of getting dementia. Wow. Yeah. One in two. That's scary statistics. It is. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there is the old adage, if you don't use it, you lose it. And, you know, I, my mom mm-hmm. died at 95. Her body broke down, but her head, brain was still very active, as, as well as my um, ex-in-laws. They played mahjong and they, you know, they did things. And I think that participation is really, really important. But I think that the whole why is there such an epidemic around dementia and Alzheimer's? Why are we looking at these increases of numbers? And there's so many things on the health perspective that's coming up. Simple things of um, under underarm deodorant with the aluminium in it, you know, that can start causing that. Do we have to look at the diet and the um, mechanical apparatuses and all of that that's around us as, as, as the cause? Is anything coming up on that? Well, I can tell you um, that there's a there's a there is a direct correlation uh, between two illnesses, and the, uh, and the two illnesses are dementia and diabetes. Mm-hmm. That the the I was with a uh, uh, a doctor this morning, and uh, I'm a I was just diagnosed at 72 as a type two diabetic, low, low end, but still type two. And we were talking about uh, a little bit about the book, but we were talking about the, the 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 correlation between diabetes and dementia, and 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 the two factors that have the greatest impact on both of these two issues is diet and exercise, mm-hmm. and and the black and Hispanic populations of the United States have the highest incidence of dementia and diabetes than in any other race. And it's because of diet and lack of exercise. And and the one real culprit is sugar. Yes. And so the 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 idea here is that if we can begin to wean us as much as we possibly can. She said something this morning that my wife was with me and we were just angry as all get out. The some of these artificial sweeteners and and, and and I'm not going to mention brands, okay? But these, some of these artificial sweeteners are so concentrated that you couldn't put it in a yellow, blue, or pink pack because it would disappear. So you know what they put it in with? Sugar. <laughs> to give it bulk. Yeah. It's meant to be a sugar replacement, but they're putting sugar in it. Right. To give it bulk. Right. So... Uh, but so the, the issue here is that if we if we look at diet and exercise, meaning we have to change our lifestyle, uh, we can begin to have begin to have impact on both diabetes, clearly on diabetes and ultimately uh, dementia. But but there are, there is also an element of both of these two diseases, and that's genetics. Um, uh, she told me that this morning that every adult on her family on both sides has all eventually gotten type 2 diabetes. So she has no chance of avoiding it. She knows it's going to happen. 
It's just a matter is by controlling her diet and exercise, how long is she going to postpone it before it happens? So, but if but we don't we we don't we don't talk about causes like this causing these two issues. But you know we have we have in again in the United States we have five million people with dementia, but we have thirty million people who are diabetics. Yeah, and we're adding one point three million diabetics every year in the United States, primarily for diet and exercise. Right. I mean, I know an awful lot of people with the type 2 diabetes, and every time I go to a doctor, they they want to say, oh, you've got type 2 diabetes, and I go, no, I don't. Uh, oh, but you've got bruising. Yeah, I fell down. You know, well, the bruising's severe. Uh, yeah, I fell really hard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's, oh, it's got to be type 2 diabetes. I said, no, it isn't. And they do a blood test, and sure yeah. enough, it comes back with that. And I think, you know, one of the things where we've got a lot of uh, the medical society, and you know, I'm not bashing doctors, but there's, it's too quick to run to a disease, too quick to do the pharmaceutical. And there isn't enough time or training around, you're on the borderline, of diabetes or on the borderline of dementia or the borderline of this and that. These are the things that you can do to slow it down or change it completely. We don't see enough of that, do we? No. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very... There's a greater stigma mm-hmm. with dementia than there, than there is with diabetes. Dramatic difference in the stigma. I mean, it's, it's both are... Ex- expensive diseases but there is still you know when when we think about it um i remember when my grandmother on my mother's side was alive i never saw my grandmother on my father's side uh or my grandfather um but um she got what we would have we would have called at that time well she's just uh she's got the old age sickness and then we we decided that we were going to call it Alzheimer's, and that got that's too negative. So then we went from Alzheimer's to dementia, and dementia has now a negative connotation. So now we're calling it memory loss. And um, we're trying to make ourselves much more accommodating and not facing the reality of what we have because memory loss isn't a diagnosis. Dementia or Alzheimer's is a diagnosis and but we're we're avoiding the reality and and right now in the united states we're spending on on dementia we're spending about 237 billion dollars wow. a year on dementia at five thousand five million imagine what we're going to be spending yeah. if it gets to 50 million and there's a tremendous amount of conflict between the researchers uh as to whether or not it could be cured um, uh, or reversed. And, uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm, I, I, I'm a person who studied this and read about it, but there's, um, I've seen photographs of, of autopsy photos of, of brains of, of people who have had dementia and you can physically see the hole in the brain. And I don't know how you grow back the great brain tissue once it's died and, and, right. and, 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 and left the hole. But, but it, it, it it's, we, we compound the problem, and, and this is the thing that, that I, um, what drove me in, in, in trying to write. Uh, the New York Times said before my book came out, this is last, oh, last winter, that the book review people said that there are a number of books on, uh, um, that are on dementia, but the best book for children was written in 1984 by Maria Shriver, and I'm saying, excuse me, 1984 is the best book, which spurred me on to write it. Um, right. And I've had I've had researchers uh, who who spent all their life studying dementia and Alzheimer's, who read the book and think it's absolutely a wonderful piece of work to help young children and families understand in a practical way what's going on, because it's it's. When, when I started thinking about writing this book and we're talking to, to librarians uh, all over the country as I traveled in my other business and I would stop by a library if I was in a town and I went to sit, find the children's library and I said, what's the book you're most in, that most people are asking for that you don't have? And everywhere I went, 
was a book on dementia. Mm -hmm. There is no book on dementia. And, um, and so as I started traveling on a book tour, I would stop by the libraries and drop off a couple of books. I said, here's the book. Right. You know, and, and I live here on Sanibel, as I mentioned, and we have a beautiful library here and, and tremendous resource. And I was, uh, meeting with the, um, the assistant to the executive director and I have another book that came out just about a year ago in December called Peter the Little Irish Seal, which is based on uh, Celtic mythology going back to the 6th century. And she bought it for her children for Christmas. And uh, she didn't have all the money. I said, well, if you pay me after I get back from, from the uh, upstate uh, or up in the, in the north after Christmas, she said, fine. So I stopped by a couple of weeks after the first of the year. She had the money for me. She says, are you writing anything new? I said, yes, I've actually working on a new book, and I told her what the title was, Why Can't Grammy Remember Me? And she started to cry. And I said, what did I do? <laughs> she said, my children loved your book, and they read it and read it and read it, and they're eight and seven years of age. Two weeks before Christmas, we, we determined that my mother could no longer live alone, and we couldn't find an assisted living facility that had space that close to the holidays, so we brought her into our house. And we've been trying to figure out how to explain to our eight-year-old and seven-year-old children what's going on with Grandma, and we're, we're at a loss for words. I desperately need this book. So when I got published, she was one of the first people that I gave a copy to at the library. I mean, because I know how much she's suffering trying mm -hmm. to figure out. I've had people... I've had adults who've read this book and tell me, I learned more about my brother's or sister's or mother's dementia by reading your book than trying to deal, getting information from doctors when they were treating my mother. Well, yeah, I mean, because doctors go off into these whole medical terms. I mean, you know, I have a thing right in front of me that shows the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. And, and, and dementia very often can come around from trauma, you know, from concussions and falls and things like that. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not really equipped to kind of understand it, even when the doctors explain it, because I think half the time they don't really understand it. Um, but it's not what the clinical term is or what's going on. It's how it affects the family. You know, to there is a beautiful thing. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it, it hits YouTube and it hits Facebook a lot. And it's of a woman singing a Jewish song to somebody who's completely gone. She remembers nothing. But every time she hears this song, she sings along with it and just cries. And I think that is something to pay attention when you have somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's, is finding something that they remember. You know, something that um, dance for them or play a song for them or read to them. Because there's a moment that they come back and it's no, they're not there for long. But those are precious treasured moments on both sides, both sides of the equations, ones that you're going to be able to carry through with you. Don't get dismayed by the disease. You know, it's, it's how to capture those beautiful moments. Right. I, there's a thing I do in the book in the, in the 12 suggestions, which is follows somewhat what you're talking about. Um, in, my mother did not have dementia. She, she had uh, brain cancer. And she, uh, fortunately for her, it was very painful, and she died relatively quickly after she was diagnosed because there was no treatment for her. But as, as, we, as, as she went through her life and moved from house to house to apartment to wherever, her inventory of things diminished. And I tell people when, when Grandma finally moves to the the nursing home or the assisted living facility, there's a box somewhere. Maybe it's more than one, but there are the things that grandma and grandpa have decided they must keep forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that box can be, it can be a photograph of a dance contest or medals from the war or marriage certificate or whatever, whatever that is. Those are the things that are most important to grandma and grandpa and find that box. And that's what you do to try and reconnect with grandma or grandpa, yes. the things that were most precious to them. And, you know, and then we have a, I'm sorry, we have a relationship with a company called iMemories, which will take all of that stuff and put it in a digital format so it will be preserved for generations to Lovely, come. lovely. 
I did a I did a wonderful uh, show a while ago on you know the the writing of a letter um and the art of letter writing because you know everything's email texting and everything else today but there's something mm-hmm. beautiful about holding a letter and it's like if you are at the beginning of that dementia to write down in a letter form, things that you wish your family to know, things, you know, the, the love of them or uh, stories that you have, uh, things that they do that please your heart, because those are things that are so beautiful as you're losing that person. You know, when, you, when somebody dies, it's very painful, but it is absolute. As you see somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's dying in front of you because their memory is dying, it's very long and a painful journey. And to have these things like a beautiful letter or, you know, videos and um, things like that to uh, for you to remember your loved ones with um, or even reading mm-hmm. that letter back to them, you know, that it may spark a memory. These things are very, very important, aren't they? Yes. In fact, um, many, many years ago, um, and I, I, I can't tell you why all of a sudden we decided to do it, but um, both of our mothers were still alive and in good health, and so we sat down with a tape recorder and recorded hours and hours and hours mm-hmm. of conversation with them through their lifetime, and that was prever- preserved electronically. Then my wife had it transcribed into a manuscript, so that we gave it to all of the grandchildren Wonderful. on both sides, so that they could see it. But, but you're right. If if you don't pres- if you don't start to preserve it, if you wait too long, it becomes difficult. And there's some exercises in the back of the book that can help to deal with that. But let me, if I can go back to the to the gentleman who I dedicated the book to, who died at 62. Mm-hmm. In speaking with the doctor who was taking care of him. And I've heard this confirmed many, many times as I was doing my research. Uh, Marvin might have been diagnosed as as pre-dementia at age 52, but his did not come for an, in, an injury. And he said, the doctor said, and the research have told me, in some cases, some people, when they get finally diagnosed with the problem, have had the problem for 30 years. Mm, mm-hmm. So it's possible that my friend who was diagnosed at 52 actually had the beginnings of dementia at 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's, it's rather like some people who have these little mini heart attacks that they don't know it until they do a CT scan, right? And, you know, you've already right, had a few strokes right, or right. heart attacks, you know, so... Right. Yeah. Uh, and, but I think it's... I think it's in, you made a very important point that we need to get out, like reinforce. Yes. Dementia doesn't necessarily diet or exercise, or it can come from injury. Yes. And I have a, a, a first cousin of my mind, of mine whose wife uh, was standing on their fireplace hearth, dusting and slipped and fell and hit her head on a table, and she now has dementia. Mm-hmm. I have a foundation that my wife and I started called Songs and Stories for Soldiers here in the United States, and we deal with traumatic brain injury, sleep deprivation, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicide prevention. And the doctors that we work with at the VA hospitals all over the country tell us that it's very likely that those soldiers who've had traumatic brain injury uh, are more likely to be candidates to have dementia later on in life. Absolutely. I just finished because watching. Of the right. I just finished watching the movie Concussion, actually. And, uh, you know, everybody just putting a little memory loss. And it was a different disease due to the impact mm-hmm. of the brain all the time. But, mm-hmm. you know, you look at sports or you look at people that, you know, are doing a lot of aggressive type of sports, you know, especially stuff that kind of shakes us. And one, one of the things he said that was really interesting in the movie is human brains don't have a shock absorber. So when we when we hit our head around, even people who are dancing and shaking their head violently, right, is there is no shock absorber and you're quite essentially bashing your brain all the time. And we don't realize there's a lot of things that we do for our lives that 
can add up over a period of time. And you wonder, where does this dementia come from? I haven't had an injury. I haven't had that. Well, let's look at maybe the sports or your lifestyle or something else. And perhaps we need to take care of ourselves a little better um, right up front. And especially when it comes to sports with our children. Well, uh, I, I wouldn't disagree with what you're saying. I would, I would say to you as a piece of information, um, when we put our program together, which is uh, MP3-based and it's primarily uh, sleep audio designed to help the, the veteran get to REM-level sleep so they can heal, we worked with the Carrick, what was then called the, the Carrick Brain Center in um, Arlington, Texas, just outside of Dallas. And, and Dr. Kagan Randall was the gentleman who founded the center and his analysis, and again, it's it's not necessarily injury, but that if you if you look at the human body, the way the Lord made us, there's a meridian line that runs down literally down the center of our body, and each half of the body is equal to the other, including the brain. And what he's found is that if the if the brain itself for whatever reason it is, is off its center line, causes mm-hmm. traumatic problems for the body. And so he's worked on technology to bring the brain, rotate it, bring it back more in line with the meridian line of the body. And he has great interest in looking at the profiles of, he's been, been dealing a lot with, with veterans, but also with individuals who've fallen and, and, and they have dementia and whatever reason. But there is there is some sense to what you're saying that just just not necessarily contact sport, but just some some motions um, uh, can throw the brain off its meridian and create all kinds of really bad things to happen to to ourselves and to our body. So there are lots of reasons why it happens. We just don't know all the reasons. And if there is, um, and he uses centrifugal force. Um, uh, like the chamber that they test astronauts in, uh, but a, a much smaller version to use the power of centrifugal force to bring the body back into alignment and has great results. So um, there are lots of things that cause dementia, um, and uh, we're probably going to be discovering more, but um, the hurt is incredibly painful mm-hmm. uh, of losing that person when... You know, I, 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 I can only imagine what it's like for a woman uh, to see the person that gave her life, and she may have given birth herself, mm-hmm. but the person who's given, given her life and, and nurtured her and helped her as she was growing and turned out to whatever she turned out to be, to watch her slowly go away and disappear and losing that influence and that person in her life, uh, it, it's got to be perhaps more devastating for women than it is for men. Yes, I think just because that natural caregiving is definitely in, and, and as you said, if you if you are a mother as well, you know, watching that is... Um, is very very hard. It's the, you know it's the same as when you're watching somebody physically depleting as well. It's very difficult. Yeah, there's yeah there are some people who have, uh, from what I can gather, in talking to researchers, um, there are there are assumptions that are being made that I think are I know based on what I'm hearing are not true, um, and 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 so as it is as a result of these false statements, um, different people have different perspectives. For example, the idea that men get dementia more so than women is not true. In fact, it's the other way around. Women mm-hmm. seem to get dementia more so than men. Um, women are, are the primary caregivers, clearly, for husbands uh, or other family members that have dementia. But but we, we, we have to bring the children into the same plane of concern as we do the siblings of grandma and grandpa or the parents because leaving them out we don't know what the long-term damage is going to be to everybody 
I mean, I hear this mm-hmm. over and over again of, you know, that they ended up looking after the parent because, um, oh, I'm, I'm too busy with my work. I'm too busy with this and that. And then there's one person that ends up having to carry the whole burden. And, uh, you know, right. that causes such a rift in the family. And this is, you know, your parent uh, or your loved one. Everybody's in it together and everybody has to pitch in at some level. But the other thing I think that we do is we underestimate our children, just how smart, logical, rational, and intuitive that they are. And by empowering our children with knowledge and preparing for what's coming, very, 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 very often, they have just wonderful, simple approaches to things that we as adults like to overcomplicate. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, 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 and and. I think that we are we are better off as a as a country, as a person, as a member of the world. I mean, this is not a problem just in the United States. No, this is a worldwide problem, and it's actually worse in Europe and Asia than it is in the United States or, or, or Canada. Oh, really? Uh, because of the oh yeah, yes the, the the dementia problem in Europe is much larger, much larger problem as it is in, in China, that the average population age in, the, in Europe and in Asia is much older than it is in the United States. So they have a much higher level of, of dementia in both of those nations. And, and we're trying to figure out how do we get our book over into some of the more English-speaking countries and mm-hmm. looking at Germany and Scandinavia and even going to on our next marketing plan, going to try and attack China. I, I don't know how we'll do there, but but um, th- but we ed- education is an important thing, and as long as everybody on the food chain is on the same page, yeah. we'll have much greater success. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we as as people just just oh, I don't want to know, I don't want to deal with that. You know, um, although that won't happen to me. You know, all of these things, denial, denial, denial. And, you know, as you're saying, the statistics are rising. I'm very surprised about Asia because generally, you know, their diet and, and um, you know, natural exercise and everything else is actually far more relevant, more prevalent than it is in North America. So that really, um, really has thrown me there. But, 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 but if you look at what's happening in Asia, uh, excuse me for interrupting no. you. What are they trying to do? They were trying to become more I Western. know, yes. So all of the fast food restaurants, all of mm-hmm. the, the high sugar, all that stuff is invading yeah. uh, has, and has been invading China for decades and in Europe. And, and it's a problem. One other thing that if, if I'm, I might, I'm sorry for no, interrupting no, you, but one thing, one thing we, we should at least bring to the table. I don't, again, I, I can't speak for Canada, but I do know that the average cost of nursing home care in a semi-private room in the United States is in excess of $110,000 a year. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And so we have people, children and grandchildren, mostly children and and parents who are ill-equipped financially to deal with nursing home care, and they either have to bring that parent into their house or they have to look for Medicaid to take over the responsibility of paying for their for their parents' care, and that that also has a whole different set of emotional issues. Uh, you talked about one person being responsible for taking mm-hmm. care of of grandma or grandpa, and the rest of the siblings not doing anything. Uh, I have a I had a situation with a client of mine whose parents both were. Um, Early, early onset dementia, and and not only was she responsible for looking after them, but paying for them. The other other siblings didn't pay. Right, I'm completely wrong. Completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. you, you know, you might not be able to physically get in there, but what you need to do if you've got the money is a you need to financially contribute, but also pay for the respite. You know, I've done a lot of shows on people who are the caregivers, and they ultimately mm-hmm. end up being sick themselves because it's twenty four seven, and it's emotionally, yes. physically, and financially in every other way draining, and it consumes right. their lives, and that is not fair. 
So it, everybody needs to step up. And you're very right, you know, you especially the way you're looking at things uh, politically in, in America right now with Medicaid is how, you know, soon is it going to be before all of that is cut back and there won't even be any support mm-hmm. for that. And it's, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've, uh, but I think underlyingly though, we've got to also look at what is the root. You know, we're looking at kind of how do we support, but what is the root of it? And, you know, when we look at a common denominator that is that is really uh, prevalent in all of these countries where dementia is coming up, is sugar, isn't it? And it's mm-hmm. and preservatives and, uh, you know, the, the metals and things that are in food. And we really very seriously have to look at our diet um, because mm-hmm. it is slowly killing us and we cannot bury our heads in yes. the sand with it anymore. No, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Now, what we have about uh, 15 minutes left. Mm-hmm. Did you want to talk about any of the other books? Yes, we certainly can. Um, but I don't want people to, to ignore this topic of dementia at all and uh, let them know where they can get this book before we go into the other books. Sure. Um, the book is available at Amazon.com or, or Barnes & Noble or whatever your online bookstore. And... Uh, if you want to order it, you can go to your local bookstore and they can order it for you. And it's Why Can't Grammy Remember Me by Dan Perkins. And um, I would love people to buy it. And I'm, I'm tithing uh, 10% of the proceeds from the sale of a book is going to the uh, foundations that work for the treatment of dementia. Wonderful. And a lot more needs to be understood about it. Most certainly more support. A preparation, too hugely on the preparation. Mm-hmm. When you first get diagnosed with it, this is the time where you've got to start putting things in order, maybe even choosing the place that you want to go to before the memory loss, making sure the whole family is in on it and who's going to be mm-hmm. there to support. It is a family affair. So please, everybody yes. step up and be a part of it. So having said that, let's get over to your Red Nile books. Um, I see three in front of me here. So uh, how about you tell us, are they... Are they a series? The first three are a, uh, are a trilogy. Um, a week after the memory book came out, uh, and I, I've still have yet not been able to figure it out. Maybe you can help me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, most people, when they write a trilogy, that means it's three books and the story is over. When, when I finished the trilogy, about nine, ten months after the third book came out, I started, I started getting emails and, and people would stop me and say, so when's the next book coming out? Mm-hmm. And I said, it's a trilogy. And they said, so? We, we like these characters. <laughs> so I, I was, I wouldn't say forced, but I wrote a sequel, which came out a week after the memory book came out. And it's called Ted Baker in Terrace Gold. It's a continuation of the story. So I don't know what to call it. It's, it's hard to do a sequel for a trilogy. It's a continuation. And I think what, based on the reaction that we're getting on the, on the trilogy in this book, it'll probably there'll be a continuous series of adventures of the Pathfinders. Well, but the first three books, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm just saying there's nothing wrong with that at all. It was worked very, very well for quite a number of authors beforehand because when you get a character you love, you just want them to yes. continue on the adventure. So stay with it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell the us first about three them. books were written called The Brotherhood of the Red Nile. And the first book in the trilogy is called Terrorist Perspective. The second book is called America Rebuilds. And the third book is America Responds. The first book, Terrorist Perspective, is written so that the American people or anybody in the world, because it's been so all over the world, anybody in the world can read this book and understand why the radical Islamic Muslims hate Americans so much. Mm-hmm. And we, I wrote this book from, the, from their perspective. It's what they're planning to do. It's why they do it. I try and help people understand the religious connotation of the Quran and Sharia law, the the culture and and the traditions that are in the Muslim faith, and and then the mystery part and the thriller part is how they acquire these two suitcase dirty bombs in the black market and their strategic relationship with the Iranian nuclear program to convert them to weapons of mass destruction. I will tell you that um, prior to 
February 6th of 2012, I had no training whatsoever in creative writing. And I took a course here on, uh, an introductory course here on Sanibel called Introductory Course to Writing Mysteries and Thrillers. Uh, I wrote the, fir the first, after the first class, I wrote a thousand words, the title of the first book. I knew the primary characters and I knew how the book was going to end. And by the time I get into the second class, I had 5,000 words. And I said to the lady who was teaching the course, you know, I don't have any background or any formal training in writing, creative writing. Is it possible for me to know the ending of the book? She says, what do you mean? I says, I can see the last line in the last paragraph on the last page. And she said, no, that's really not real normal. I wrote the first installment, The Terrace Perspective, in 90 days. I immediately started and knew, when I, before I finished the first book, how the second book was going to start and finish and how the third book was going to start and finish. So by uh, September the 6th, 2013, literally 18 months to the day from the first keystroke, I completed the trilogy. Wow. And, and um, um, that opened up a career for me that I, I never envisioned. I, I write commentary current events commentary for eight blogs in the United States, uh, Newsmax, Laura Ingram's Life Set, The Daily Caller, TheHill.com, uh, Reagan Babe, uh, Clash Daily, and others. Um, I'm on a syndicated radio show for small business. I do between 40 and 60 interviews a month on various subjects, whether it's current politics or economics. Um, I do appearances um, all over the country. And I write books, and this all happened in the last five years. Yeah, well, you know, that was um, the, the, the shift that happened, and a lot of people kind of waking up to what their real purpose was in life. And, and uh, you know, we never know, we, do we, you know, what's in us um, until we're willing to step up. And it's, uh, you know, my brother is a professional for, has been for the last 50 years, um, and very diligent and, uh, you know, dedicated one but I've interviewed so many people who are authors that it, it just they sat down and everything just came pouring out and it's just like when everything's properly aligned up you talked about the brain being aligned up right the rest of the body mm -hmm. has to be in, in 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 alignment with each other alignment with the universe with the earth with ourselves you know alignment is something is a core key word and when things are properly aligned up you know you got introduced to that opportunity and you opened up your floodgates and as you said you right. can't stop now you've created something here that people want and uh, you yep. know and obviously what they need and and I'm glad that you've written a book from the perspective of actually understanding why America is hated so much where they're coming from because everybody mm -hmm. wants to just paint this brush all the time of evil and bad and this and that nobody comes evil and bad overnight there's always a trigger yeah. Right, and we need to understand what yeah, that it, is, what our part is in it. Yeah, and and, and, and while this was going on four years ago, uh, I, I believe that the Lord spoke to me to form this foundation, mm -hmm. which was called He called it Songs and Stories for Soldiers. We're now in eighty-five facilities across the United States. Uh, we've distributed almost fourteen thousand players. We get thirty thousand downloads a month from our website, and we do it all for free. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people we work with are just phenomenal. So um, that's another thing that was not in my life before that that, that came in. And 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 I, I I tell people as I travel on the country, and they ask about how did you become a writer, and how did how do you become such a prolific writer? I said by listening to what the Lord tells you to do. Exactly. Channeling, we call it, opening up and allowing it to happen, and getting out of your head yes. and trusting your mm -hmm. divine heart. Right, that is uh, mm -hmm. stepping into mm -hmm. your knowingness. You know, the divine speaking through your soul to your heart. It resonates in your spirit action, and the mind knows what it needs to know when it needs to know it. And that is just totally right. and utterly channeling and tapping in, and not doing your buts. Oh, but I'm not a writer. Oh, but I'm not this. You saw, you felt something that you had to do, and you just followed and allowed and let it happen. Yeah, my um. Um, I was talking to my wife uh, a couple of years ago about writing this book called Peter the Little Irish Seal. 
And I, I had written, by the time I had written the three books of the, of the trilogy on radical Islamic nuclear terrorism, and uh, I said, do you think I can write a children's book? And she said, well, are you a writer? I said, yeah, I'm a writer. But that doesn't mean because I'm a writer I can write on any subject matter. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody who writes thrillers writes children's books. And she said, well, I think you can do it. So I, I, I sat down and thought about this and researched it and, and um, found an illustrator in, in Mumbai, India, to do the illustrations for me. Um, and so, you know, my writing took a, a, at one time I was writing, um, the terrorist gold book, literally rewriting it, uh, while I was writing the, uh, the, why can't Grammy remember me? And while I was writing my first, in the process of writing my first historical fiction, so I was writing, and then a, another piece for a hospital uh, foundation here in, in Southwest Florida. So at one time I had four or five writing book writing projects whilst continuing to do commentary one or two times a week and all the other stuff I do. So Well, they say women um, are multitaskers. <laughs> it's rare to see a man <laughs> such a multitasker, but you're clearly one of them. Um, yeah. I, I have just interviewed um, C, um, S. E. Sherman, Steve Sherman. Um, he's with thedailysearch.com as well. And, uh, you know, he's written books that are all over the place, you know, children's, memoirs. Um, you know, um, he's got one out at the present moment. Um, you know, about a veteran coming back just wanting to be a cowboy and only to find out the farm next to it is a terrorist camp, you know, and it's, right. uh, and, it, and for him, it came through the same way, just allowing the flow, you know, not dictating, uh, you know, just letting it out when it needs to come out. And then if you need to know information like research or anything, that will come so much more easily when you're in the flow, because the information you need, it always seems to then be at your fingertips, doesn't it? Yeah, there are people who who read my trilogy and now reading the 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 fourth book, the continuation of the story, um, that uh, are, are amazed at the the detail in the book, and they say to me, it it obviously looks like you've done a lot of research, and I said, I think uh, probably uh, I spent almost as time as much time researching as I did in physically writing the narrative because the, if, if you have, uh, I say to the people in all of my books, the technology is real. Many of the events are real. The places are real. It's just that the people that are fictitious mm -hmm. and, um, you can look at addresses on, in my, in my books all over the world and you can go to Google maps and you can find them. And the technology for spy technology is, is all real. Uh, and so it brings an essence of realism. Um, and one of the things that I did in, in, in the Terrorist Gold book, uh, it should have been out a year ago, but as I was reading, writing, beginning to write my first historical fiction, um, I noticed that for some reason my writing style changed. And um, I moved from third-person writing to first-person writing. And my editors loved the first-person storytelling ability that I have. So I literally went back and rewrote Terrorist Gold into first-person. And they say that it's made it even more exciting to read. So mm. um, we tell people, I tell people, in any of the three books and now the fourth, don't start them after 9 o'clock at night because... They're very difficult to put down. Yes, that's the way I like to read a book anyway. Leave me alone. I'm in my comfy chair and uh, I'm just yeah. going to just keep reading and reading. And that's the way I like to do that. Um, uh, because You'd be then up you, all night. Yeah, exactly. You get immersed <laughs> into the story. And I also love it. It's rather like, you know, a good Bordeaux, right? Where you put the glass and then the, the flavor of the wine is still in your mouth. I like to have a book that stays with me. I don't want to rush into another book unless it's a trilogy or, you know, the next chapter of the book. Then I want to get right into it. But I like books to savor. And I think if you can put a book down and then take that pause and kind of let it savor, I think that's, that's when you really know you've got a well-written book because you want to stay with the story. You don't want to just rush off into something else. I, I, I try, um, some people uh, say that I do a, a, a really good job of cliffhangers. And the beauty of being able to write a trilogy 
is that you can put a cliffhanger in the first novel, but it may not get answered to the third novel. Ah, oh, so you're a torturer then. There. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it festers there, wondering what's going to happen. And um, uh, I believe in twists and turns, and mm-hmm. and uh, I, I love it when people tell me I didn't see that coming at all. Right. Because that says I'm to- totally mystified. And I'm, I'm working on this new historical fiction, which uh, I, I think could be... It, it, dramatic and it's called abraham lincoln and the second assassin Mm. and and i i already i before i knew this before i started writing this book i knew what the ending was going to be i absolutely it was as vivid and when i by the time i started to write the second book in the trilogy i was already thinking about the lincoln book and i and i knew exactly how it was going to end and i tell people if you're not a cheater, now, I don't know whether you're a cheater, but a cheater is a person who reads the ending yes. before they read the beginning. Are you a cheater? No, no, I like to. I like oh. the story to build. Okay. <laughs> so I, I said, I don't know how many pages this book's going to be. Let's say it's 400. I said, I guarantee you, if you haven't cheated, and you're on page 399, you will not know which on page 400. It'll be an absolute total shock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, very intriguing. I love that. It's juicy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, this is the thing is you're writing a lot of faction, you know, fictional characters, fictional kind of story with a lot of facts and bases in there. And I think that, you know, mm-hmm. people who write books that are just purely fact, it can be too terrifying. It also could be too boring. When you add characters mm-hmm. in there and you take them through this, but the facts are there, the fiction is in the way that people are seeing those facts. I think it becomes so much more relatable and so much much more exciting where people can't put down the book they want to know more because it's then in their minds how much of this is true I, I love that when a book makes me think of can this be completely true is this really completely true I want that guessing point to be there or I totally believe it's true then something that's just boring and flat and factual so let me <laughs> let me give you let me take that statement real quick for you because I know we're almost out of time uh, the first book started on February the 6th, 2012, okay? So think about that date. Six years today, yeah. Okay. In, and that book came out in the summer of 2012. The mm-hmm. story is about, listen, the story is about a terrorist group that is formed in central Syria. Exactly the same place where ISIS originated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Predictive writing. So I was I was writing about ISIS before ISIS was even formed. Right. Well that's where and the that challenging scares, comes that in. Scares a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> scares a lot of people when they read that. Yes, yes. That is, you know, that uh, intuitive channeling that opens up, giving you the knowledge beforehand, Um, you know, that divine knowledge. And, you know, if we did open up to it more instead of being so dictatorial on our knowledge and allow our knowledge to come, we would actually understand a lot more and and see a lot more. So I'm glad that you've opened up those channels and you're just allowing it all to come to you and not denying it and not dictating it, just, you know, following it, really, because it's leading you, isn't it? Right. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, now I want all these links from you. Um, reiterate the link for, for the, the Grammys book and also the books, um, all of these Brotherhood books, the Red Niles, how they get those. Uh, any new books? And also, if you would tell us also about your foundation, please. Yes. The, all the books are available at Amazon.com or other online booksellers. Uh, can be ordered there. And uh, my personal website that has commentary, stories about the books, interviews, radio, television, all that stuff is danperkins.guru, G-U-R-U. The Foundation's website is songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. And you can find me at all of those. Excellent. Well, I'm certainly going to be talking to you about the... uh 
the veterans thing because I interview an awful lot of veterans and I love their stories. So I really would love to to know more about that. And that's another show where we can just dedicate ourselves to that. And um, I'd love to. And I thank you so much for for being with us here today. But also, you know, I honour the fact that you have allowed this journey to happen to you you know that you tapped into your own divine essence and you have followed the path that's being laid before you without resistance because it's obviously pleasing many people but you're also educating people all along the line and uh, you know with the dementia with these other books with what's coming out um, it's great to be able to read a book that you can enjoy but at the same time leaves you knowledge that you know so thank you so much for all Mm -hmm. your writing Thank you for having me. And uh, certainly have you back to do with your veterans organization, most certainly. So, folks, uh, you know, it's I think a good lesson to learn here today is one, you've learned a great deal about dementia and you need to know more. So get this book. It's not just for the children. It's for the whole family. And please do not ignore it. Do not bury your head in the sand and start looking at your sugar intake. And then as far as the other books are concerned, is that when we actually understand why the hate is there, you know, there's a lot more understanding, forgiveness and knowledge that and empowerment that we can have. So take the thriller journey, but at the same time, learn a great deal from it. And the other lesson that we learned here today is that trust your flow trust that divine energy and wisdom that comes through you do not deny it or dictate it follow it because you never know where it could take you you also could be a number one seller so until next time folks bye for now